Welcome to the Sciences Po Energy Podcast. My name is Paul Evans, and my guest today is Andrea Utkin, Principal Analyst for CleanTech at IHS Market. Like myself, Andrea is a Sciences Po graduate from the Energy Program. Andrea worked previously as an engineer in power generation, but now is a researcher focused on offshore wind. Offshore wind is a hot topic right now, with rising market capitalizations from established players despite the COVID-19 pandemic as well as oil majors such as BP and Equinor entering into partnerships to invest in the market. We discuss the drivers behind this growth, whether or not the transition into renewables from oil majors is meaningful, and where the market is going in terms of technology, such as floating offshore wind, and geographies such as North America. Good evening, Andre Utkin, and welcome to the Sciences Po Energy podcast. Before starting, I'd like to know a bit more about you, who you are, and uh, what is your interest in offshore wind? Good evening, um, and thank you so much for having me in your amazing show, Paul. Um, I'm delighted to be here and to be given this opportunity to have a beautiful discussion on offshore wind. Just a bit of my background, I'm a Sciences Po alumni, as as you are, I graduated in 2017 from Master of International Energy, as, as you did. Um, and now I'm leading offshore wind and some non-mainstream research and analysis um, and consulting at IHS Market. There's a massive amount of interest in offshore wind at the moment. Uh, we look at figures from the IEA, we see the market grew about 30% per year between 2010 and now. And the IEA expect the market to grow by another order of magnitude in the next 20 years. What I want to know from you is, you know, what's going on in this market and what are the main drivers of growth? You know, in recent years, bottom fixed offshore wind has proved its maturity and robustness. And let me probably name a few key points here. First of all, it's a significant cost reduction. So why offshore wind is so is so popular these days? Since only five years, Offshore wind cost nearly halved, so the technology have become very competitive to other means of power generation. Just five years ago, in uh, 2015, in the first uh, CFD allocation round in the UK, uh, projects were awarded at a price of around 114 to 120 pounds per megawatt hour. And in 2019, the CFD round three had something around 41 pound per megawatt hour. So, you know, in these five years, the sector has achieved an incredible cost reduction. So um, something around 65%. Then secondly, offshore wind has relatively high capacity factors, something um, above 50% in, in, in good and windy locations. So in comparison to other renewables, for example, for example uh, solar PV, it's, uh, it's twice as much. Offshore wind projects are usually located very close to load centers. So the electricity is consumed close to the places where it is actually generated and very high public support. So it solves the not in my backyard issue, um, which we have with onshore wind, right? When people do not really see this massive and giant turbines, and we have to remember that those turbines today, they're something around 220 meters high. Um, so when you don't see them, it increases the, the public support. All right. So tell me then, why have costs gone down so much? There are also a few points here. The first one is economies of scale. This is 
incredibly important and in economies of scale in everything, right? The industry, as I told you, has achieved tremendous cost reductions, pretty much halved, and we are at around 80 euros per megawatt hour today. First, probably CAPEX, uh, larger turbines, the remarkable development in technology. Um, we used to start with something like two or three megawatt per unit, and now we install these days something around eight or nine megawatt per unit. Uh, Siemens Gamesa G and uh, Vestas will also soon announce a new model. Uh, we are moving into 13 to 15 megawatt per unit by 2050, and we believe that Further, going further by 2030, uh, we will have turbines something around probably 17 to 20 megawatt per unit. So on a per megawatt basis, there are massive cost reductions just because of that. Obviously, we have economies of scale in a sense that uh, projects have become much larger. We used to have projects of 50 to 100 megawatts per, per one farm. Now we're talking about gigawatt scales. So this is important. Talking about turbines, indeed, they very much increased in size, but it's not only about turbines, right? It's across the whole value chain, the whole equipment, foundations, transmission, transportation, installation activities, everything has decreased um, in terms of in terms of cost. Substantial enhancement in capacity factors as well. So given the fact that we are moving further from shore and into deeper waters, we untap better wind resources. So we 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 get higher capacity factors and that um the costs as well. Capital costs as well has has decreased uh, since five years. Investor see offshore wind as a much lower risk investment compared with uh, five or ten years ago. Yes, exactly. Um, not only investors, but all all the participants in in the industry. Uh, developers they they got certain experience and they got certain. Um, understanding how uh, smoothly to develop projects, but also financing mechanisms and financial players, uh, they got confidence in the technology. They see that it's much more robust and they kind of trust um, the, the technology. So that's why uh, the, 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 the financing went down. Sure. And, uh, you know, I understand this, this development is, is really important, but it's interesting to understand it in the wider context of the global power market. So what percentage of the overall electricity supply globally is offshore wind? Right, so that's also a great question. Um, if, we, if we're talking about power generation among other renewables, because I think that this is what we have to compare, we have to compare offshore wind to other renewable generation, uh, right? So if we compare on a global scale, it's relatively niche and small. It's only 3% among other renewables, uh, or at least it was in 2020. But That obviously includes hydroelectric, right? Right, yeah, 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 exactly. But what is interesting here is probably not to look at the whole world because I, I, I just want to remind you that as, as of today, we have something around 35 gigawatt of installed capacity globally. These 35 gigawatts are concentrated in, well, basically six markets, right? So you have UK, you have Germany, you have mainland China, have Denmark, Netherlands, Belgium. So pretty much all this capacity, this 35, is concentrated there. So what is interesting to see is the share of production or generation, not 
uh, globally, but in these top key markets. And just a few figures in the UK, for example, in 2019, the generation of offshore wind was slightly more than 30%, which is which is huge. Uh, of renewables or of power? Of renewables, of renewables, of renewables. If we're talking about Denmark, um, nearly 25% of, of all the renewables, uh, plus 46% with onshore wind. But what is interesting, if we're looking at the whole generation mix of Denmark, for example, then offshore wind would be 20% because Denmark is, is, is relatively green, right? So... Exactly. So 20 percent of the whole mix, and it's going to it's going to increase in future. That's 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 pretty clear. So yeah, that's interesting that in certain markets, offshore wind plays a, a very important role. Indeed, uh, you know, I, I'm interested in knowing more about the economics of wind farms, and we we know that there's a, a reduced cost, and we know that there's a much more a mature market, and therefore. The way in which wind farms are paid for has has changed. So you know, early on, uh, even actually as early on as, as five years ago, uh, we might have a, a feed-in tariff uh, for a wind farm where they're paid a lot per megawatt hour that's injected into the grid. But uh, this is no longer that typical. Um, so how are wind farms paid for today, and uh, why does the the feed-in tariff model no longer make sense? Right. It's yeah. It's a good question. I, as we know, yeah, historically we had high subsidies, and you know, it's not only it's not only a question about offshore wind. It's the question about renewables in general, right? At the early stages, when you know certain technologies are at pilot stage of development, as for example, we have today floating offshore wind or hydrogen, or you know, these technologies which are pretty costly at the beginning, and you need to push them to fly. Well, obviously, you need some investments, and somebody has to pay for that. So, you know, from this from this kind of standpoint, feeding tariffs is 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 not that bad at the end. Um, but just to a certain extent, at some point when the technology matures, well, probably you want to move into other mechanisms, right? To 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 push the develop the development further. So. Um, yeah, we kind of moved from these high subsidies uh, and feeding tariffs um, to competitive auctions and sometimes with no subsidies. Um, if we're talking about feeding tariffs today, well, globally, we nearly do not have feeding tariffs anymore, uh, particularly in Europe. Uh, in Europe, we don't. We have CFDs, different varieties of different types of CFDs. We have uh, premiums, we have certificates. Or even zero subsidy. Feeding tariffs, um, as far as I am aware, we have in uh, Taiwan and we have in mainland China. But mainland China is, uh, yeah, there is an installation rush this year. And so feeding tariffs are going to expire by. You just briefly mentioned it. I don't want to talk a bit more about it, but this is uh, zero subsidy offshore wind. And there's, there have been a couple of projects in Europe that I've been reading about. So um, do you want to tell me, first of all, a bit more about these projects? And then I want to know if this is uh, you know, a viable model on a, on a wider scale. Sure. Yeah, zero subsidy is quite, a, quite an interesting topic. As you mentioned, there are a few projects in Europe. So Germany and Netherlands have been using this approach. As far as I remember, Germany was 2017, a few tenders and the Netherlands in 2018, 19, and last year. 
Um, if we're talking about project in Vattenfall, it's a, a Swedish uh, utility. Uh, Vattenfall has won 1.5 gigawatt of zero subsidy in Netherlands combined. So these are two projects. Shell won last year uh, 760 megawatt Hollandkust Nord. And Orsted has a 900 megawatt Borkum Ringgrund 3 in Germany. So combined, let's say that we have something around 4 gigawatt of zero subsidy project across these two countries. And yeah, just if just briefly mention what is this? So basically, and how it how it works, uh, when companies participate in an auction, they bid for an option to build an offshore wind park with no subsidies. So once fully commissioned, they will be fully exposed to volatile wholesale power market prices. But when they bid in an auction, uh, once again, it's just an option to build. So then, you know, there, there will be a certain period of time when a company will have to decide whether to proceed with that option or to pay a certain fine and not to proceed and not to build. These wind farms have not yet been built. Obviously, no. Basically, it's recent, recent, recent tenders, and yeah, they will be, they will be, they will be built prior um, 2023, I guess. My my wider question about this is: How viable do you think the zero subsidy model is on a wider scale? And uh, you know, if if you don't think it's viable, then then what are going to be the the models for for paying for wind farms in in Europe that are most common in the next uh, maybe 10, 15 years? This is a very good question, and we receive it all the time about zero subsidy and how do you think this 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 project are viable on a larger scale? Well, every developer is trying to minimize risks and do not want to be fully exposed to power markets, right? So, for zero subsidy capacity, developers are trying to sign PPAs, prioritizing final investment decisions. So, at least some capacity has long term contracts. Now, you know, a good question is to what extent it can be implemented on a wider scale. If I have to predict, I would probably say that some capacities will be allocated without subsidies and what we saw already. But if we want to develop massive additions of offshore wind in Europe and elsewhere in the world, we would have to have some level of support. And we already saw it last year when Shell won the 760 megawatt Holland Coast North. You know, everybody before prior that tender, everybody kind of thought that probably Vattenfall is going to bid for, for that project because Vattenfall had already 1.5 gigawatt of zero subsidy capacity. So it would be very logical to bid for additional 760 to have, you know, 2.2 gigawatt combined and, you know, to build a, um, to connect it somehow. So to organize it in a way that you have the full control of three projects combined. Um, But then Vattenfall um, announced that it's not going to participate in this auction just simply because it is very risky to put all those in one basket and to say that I have one market where I have 2.2 gigawatt absolutely uncontracted. So I'm fully exposed. And if anything goes wrong by anything goes wrong, meaning that power prices will go down, probably it's not going to be sufficient um, uh, to get, you know, healthy revenues. Um, so having said that, uh, I would probably believe 
that uh, we will see additional zero subsidy capacity, but on a larger scale, I guess that we need some 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 level of support. And PPAs is one of the one of the mechanism how these companies actually can take final investment decision and finance those projects. For instance, if we're talking about 900 megawatt Borkum Rivgrund three in Germany, so Oysted haven't taken uh, so far the final investment decision, but uh, it has already a PPA for, I would probably guess, like 40% of a project. Which is selling power at a fixed price to whomever they're selling it to. Right, exactly, exactly. For the next 15 years or so. So, you know, to a certain extent, yes, they do not have a subsidy, but this capacity is contracted already. So... You can sell your power at a fixed price without a government subsidy, which is good because, of course, you don't necessarily want to be exposed to these variable prices. Exactly, exactly. And also, if we see the balance sheets of those companies, which I mentioned before, uh, and if you see all the capacity that they own and all the projects that they develop, nearly or even more than 95% of it will be contracted. So they are not really exposed so, yeah, to, yeah. To, to, to power markets uh, these days. So it's just started and we, we have to see how it's going to go. And also, obviously, it depends on the, on the complexity of the market. It depends on the complexity of the project, right? So now these first projects, they are, I wouldn't yeah. say they're relatively easy to build because obviously we're talking about offshore wind and it's not easy. It's, it's super complex, but everything can be compared, right? So if we're moving far away, you know, 200 kilometers from shore, uh, massive, very harsh conditions, then I highly doubt that it can be built on a, once again, on a massive scale without subsidies. Interesting. There's one point that you almost made, which was that Vattenfall, who initially had, and they still do have, huge future capacity in unsubsidized offshore winds, but they didn't want to get more of it. So do you think that does signal some let's say, some skepticism from big offshore players for being exposed to variable wholesale power markets? I wouldn't probably say that it's skepticism. It's just that you, you know, you want to minimize your risks, right? And you don't want to have the full unsubsidized capacity probably in one market in one country. It's much better to have indifferent, right? So you want to diversify. And, you know, yeah, if if the power price goes down in one market, probably you can leverage and you can and you can get it from another one. So this is much more wise, right? We can't really say that it's skepticism. Shell won this capacity and I'm 100% sure, nearly 100% that Shell is going to build this capacity. If there will be a new tender and there will be a new tender in Netherlands, we expect that and Netherlands has something around, I don't remember, like 11.5 gigawatt of target by 2030. Shell will build for, for a new capacity because Shell has a, a, a huge interest in, 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 in offshore wind in Netherlands and dedicated hydrogen for that. I wouldn't call it skepticism. I would just call it, you know, strategy to minimize yeah, and risk management. You talked a bit about some of the players in the offshore wind industry. And, you know, specifically we mentioned Orsted, we also mentioned Vattenfall. You know, there are other big renewable players like Iberdrola who are in the industry. And also Equinor. All these players, with the exception of Equinor, they are not 
companies with big oil and gas assets. Uh, but if you do read the news, then you'll notice that there is a lot of interest from oil and gas majors. In fact, we already mentioned Shell. There's a partnership between BP and Equinor. And uh, ENI has become an investor in the Dogger Bank wind farm, which is the biggest wind farm, I think, in the world. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, or at least it will be. However, these oil majors still have very little renewable investments relative to their like entire portfolio of capex maybe it's only about uh, 2% do you think this investment in offshore wind by these players like bp and shell is really an indicator of a real transition for of oil majors into renewables or do you think it's too small to be important at this point yeah, great question. You mentioned 2% of CapEx um, here, probably um, I might disagree a bit. Um, you know, last year in 2020, I mean, um, it was a year of major disruptions caused by pandemic. And at the beginning of the year, if you remember, there was a Russia-Saudi oil price war. So we expected already CapEx in 2020 by oil and gas majors to be somehow cut. However, what is interesting is that these companies, um, pretty much all of those who you mentioned, and particularly the European part of the group, um, they have largely maintained their low carbon spending plans for the year 2020. As a, as a result, the low carbon investments is now something around 6.5 and it's not already 2%. And it's 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 heavily varied from company to company. Um, sometimes, or for some of those players, it's even uh, above ten percent. So um, it's 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 already it's already something. Then maybe if I can briefly mention a few points, like why these companies are actually doing so. I guess first of all, it's a companies oil and gas majors. They are under extreme pressure these days because there is a real demand for energy transition from the society. And so they started to set up carbon-related goals like Total, Shell, BP, and Repsol. They want all to reduce emissions to reach net zero by 2050. Yeah, you mentioned uh, ENI. Um, the company expects to low carbon business to account for something around 50% of the portfolio by 2035. Equinor has a target as well of 15 to 20% of its CAPEX to be focused somewhere in renewables by 2030. Tatal has made uh, a huge move into offshore wind and also buying different renewable developers across the globe. So a third point is that they really, I guess, changed uh, since since a few years, but 2020 probably was a dramatic milestone. They changed their perception around the risk-reward trade-off. Um, historically, traditionally, uh, oil and gas players and investments have been associated with higher expected returns, but also with higher volatile risks, so relative to low-carbon investments. However, these days, uh, you know, oil and gas returns have been under pressure for pretty much the last decade. And the current low price environment is likely to further depress returns in the near term. So um, kind of for them, it's a very logical move to go into power business because, yes, maybe returns are not as huge as they used to be in oil and gas business, but still 
they are kind of secured, right? Because in most of the cases, you, as as we discussed before, either you have support schemes or these capacities contracted somehow. So revenues maybe are not that high, but they are very stable. So why then why offshore wind? Um, you know, this is the industry where oil and gas can leverage their core experience because they are very familiar with harsh offshore conditions. And that's a very fast growing and promising area with extremely high entry barriers, by the way. And this is something that oil and gas are not afraid of at all. And if you look the outlooks of, of, of different agencies to 2030, uh, offshore wind is the industry which is going to grow um, pretty much the most. So, um, yeah, to sum up, I would not call the investment into the renewable area negligible from this from this sector. Uh, and I believe it will only increase over time if proper policies and mechanisms obviously are in place. Uh, I want to talk a bit about about the future of offshore wind. Uh, and the first topic in the future I want to talk about is uh, geographical areas. So most of the offshore wind development so far has been in Europe and has also been a little bit in Asia, so particularly China, Taiwan. Uh, but there's been very little development so far in in North America. So uh, why not? What is wrong with the North American market? <laughs> what is wrong? Uh, nothing is wrong with North American market. It's just an emerging market. I, I, I believe that it's a very prominent one. As you know, the U.S. has something around 35 gigawatt target by 2035, mostly in the eastern part of the U.S. Some states like the state of New York is really, really ambitious. They have nine gigawatt target by 2030. But certainly there, there are certain challenges. If, if mentioned just a few, first of all, lack of clear permission process is probably one of the most important ones. But I think this is the future not only of the US market, but just of any emerging market, right? Like when a country trying to establish something new, it's a, it's a, it's a large industry. It has to have a lot of different, I don't know, supporting elements around it. It's, it's, it's very challenging. And here, obviously, offshore wind is an extremely complex industry and field. Um, so, so many actors and so many players and so many parties in, are involved. And obviously, it's, 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 it's hard at the beginning, but I believe it's going to be smoothed uh, further down the road. So, the first one will be struggling, and they have been struggling to move into construction phase. In the US, we do have a lack of supply chain or dedicated supply chain. So, um, US right now is building a few first dedicated offshore wind installation vessels, they're going to be delivered in a few years. And that and that's going to obviously accelerate massively the deployment of offshore wind. US has to build all this in order to in order to to make a push, right? Uh, but but there's but there's massive interest and obviously you know government has been very supportive and um, as you know, um, uh, earlier this 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 month, um, um, a new investment tax credit for offshore wind was signed. So, the previous one uh, has expired at the end of uh, twenty twenty, uh, and now there is a new one for the next ten years, uh, which equals. Um, I think it, I, ETS for offshore wind in the US now is 30%. Uh, 
Um, so the combination of all of these things, right? Developers are there. The supply chain is under is under constructed. There are massive investments in ports, uh, in vessels, uh, and there is a uh, even a support mechanism in place now. Uh, I believe uh, it's gonna fly. We just need to we just need to wait a bit. And once the first projects are in place, it's gonna go smoother. All right. So the other thing, you know. We're talking about geography. I also want to talk about technology. And one technology that is very interesting is floating offshore wind. And okay, so, you know, basic understanding floating offshore wind is that you can build it in uh, deep water. So that's great. You have. But um, my question is, uh, you know, don't we have already enough sites to build uh, regular offshore wind? So what's the interest in, in, in floating? Right. That's, uh, yeah, that's a great one. Um, so, um my my view is you know these two um technologies bottom fixed and floating they are not competing with each other they do complement each other and this is a fundamental difference uh i completely agree with you uh obviously there is enough spots or places because as i mentioned right at the beginning we have only 35 gigawatt of installed capacity so there's a lot there's huge potential according to in europe if we're talking about europe um at least uh, 450 gigawatt even more of just bottom fixed can be built right across the globe in the US also it's relatively shallow waters in Taiwan in other in other in other markets you obviously can build bottom fixed and that's very true but um, floating offshore wind has certain potential where bottom fixed cannot be just simply built uh, for example in as you said deep water certain markets just can't have bottom fixed california or japan or south africa or certain places in france atlantic ocean or norway or uh, yeah there's a different south korea there's so many different places in the world where it just can't be built or um maybe it's not it's it's relatively shallow but the seabed condition is really poor so you can't really install bottom fixed you have to go floating and this um, where floating can 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 complement the convention on the on the environment. So very important uh, thing that you mentioned right at the beginning that you can untap better wind resources. And if you think about it, floating can reach the capacity for higher than sixty percent. So because you can go to any site, pretty much any site in the world, uh, and you can untap you know the best wind resources possible. And you know. Just if you have over 60% of capacity factor, this is pretty much a baseload power generation, right? So, um, you know, it doesn't mean that it will not develop, as you said, undeveloped bottom fixed site. But it means that on top of that, if we want to, you know, deploy uh, those massive ambitious targets that uh, European Union wants to have, then floating is one of those technologies that have to be deployed in certain places. You know, right now the cost of of, of floating offshore wind it's pretty expensive. Maybe uh, you maybe correct me if I'm wrong. It's about three hundred euros per megawatt hour. How much do you think it will decrease in the next uh, ten fifteen years? Right. So, um, yeah, I think it's 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 a bit lower than that. So, three hundred megawatt. Um, it used to be before three hundred megawatt. Uh, sorry, three hundred euros per megawatt hour. I guess that's something like 
according to Aquino, right, who is developing well one of the largest areas right now, which is Highway uh, Highway Tampen. Uh, in uh, it's eighty eight megawatts in Norway, which is going to supply electricity for two oil and gas platforms. It's already below one hundred fifty euros per megawatt hour. Um, I guess that 2030, uh, we're going to see the LCE decreased by something around 50 to 60 euros per megawatt hour, which is pretty, pretty, pretty compatible to, to, to the conventional offshore wind. Uh, but here, you know, there are a few comments probably on that and how we, we, have to, we have to proceed in order to reach this, this level of costs. So this year, the 20... Uh, 21 is the milestone for floating offshore wind because in the UK uh, there will be a first dedicated uh, tender for auction for floating capacity. So that's actually the year when the first commercial capacity would will be tendered uh, for this technology. And uh, then later on, other countries, not only UK, but France and, and, and Japan and others, they will be tendering more capacity. So once we move into commercial phase and once we will see the real competition um, in, this, in this field, I would probably guess that cost will be dramatically decreased very fast. And they will be, um, let's say, very compatible to, 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 to conventional bottom fixed in certain places in the world. There's one final question I want to ask. Do you think that offshore wind can be a competitor to uh, fossil fuels? Or do you think that, um, you know, maybe because it is, has a more variable power supply, it's more of a complement than a competitor? You know, it depends on the market, obviously, right? So in certain markets like UK, uh, you know, the country has 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 chosen the offshore wind um, as a as a primer technology to be developed and to be installed. And as we discussed with you right at the beginning, the share already the share of generation is very very high. Um, is it compatible to 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 conventional generation? Well, it is already. No, in 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 many markets, right in UK, forty pounds per megawatt hour for those developments uh, delivered in 2025, 2026. Uh, it's uh, it's already happening. Then is it is it intermittent? Well, yeah, possibly, but. Once again, if you on top capacity fire capacity factors, sorry, up to sixty percent, then you are almost a base load. You are not solar wind or solar or, or onshore wind when you have capacity factors between twenty and I don't know thirty percent. So, having said all this, uh, you know. Can offshore wind solve all our problems? Well, probably not. Will it be one of the major renewable technologies to be developed? Well, certainly, certainly it will, and you know, in particularly in places with favorable conditions. So, uh, first of all, um, wind resources, and secondly, uh, policy. And there has to be a political will to to have this build out, right? So, as I as I mentioned before support schemes will have to be in place so we have to make this decision to to as a society to 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 subsidize or to pay for it let's say to help the technology to be built right because i i don't really like this word subsidize sometimes uh, when we see and there's certain consensus in the market that, that cfd is one of the best support one of the most efficient 
support scheme, right? Which helps, first of all, to drive the development, which drives the competition. But at the same time, it helps the government to spend the state fund in the most efficient way. So it spends less, but it... So in places where all these conditions are met, yeah, offshore wind has, has its future. It's been super interesting talking to you. It's clear that offshore wind is one of the most promising, if not the most promising, renewable energy technology for power generation. So thank you so much for coming on the Sciencesport Energy Podcast. Thank you so much, Paul, for having me. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Sciences Po Energy Podcast, recorded and produced in Paris by Paul David Evans with help from Sirvash Barhodar. If you like the podcast, then feel free to leave a rating on iTunes or whatever you are listening. And if you're an undergraduate student and you're interested in energy, then have a look at the program offered by Sciences Po.